Ever feel like you're drowning in credit card debt and there's no way you will ever get things in the black? The good news is that you can pull yourself out of the credit card blues. The bad news is that you have a worse debt and the advice you get from many experts about how to make these payments is dead wrong. Our study leader, Dave Woodson, takes us to Romans 4, 13-25, where a Jewish rabbi tells us how to get in the clear with God, and his advice goes totally against the advice of the major religions, including Judaism, Islam, and parts of Christianity. How many of you have ever gotten one of these Discover Card things? It tells me here 5.9% fixed APR, and it even has checks down here at the bottom. Anybody ever got one of those? All right, here's another one. This is awesome, man. Mary and I can easily get, oh, let me just see. Man, this one even goes up to $10,000, oh, even more than that, $30,000. Man, we must have incredible credit. How many of you have ever gotten one of those? Well, there's a good chance you have. I noticed that 8 billion, that's what it is, 8 billion of these offers have been sent out this past year. Can you imagine that? Just to give an idea of how serious the issue is, credit is easy, it's widespread, it's confusing, but it's not free. In fact, in 1968, based on current dollars, our credit card debt was $8 billion. What do you think it is now? $880 billion. When you adjust for inflation, the fees alone are going to, they cost you, and I hope this wasn't you individually, but $17.1 billion in 2006. And consumer saving dropped below zero. Now, those that are old times in the midst, they're really concerned about this. And the good news, that's really bad news. The bad news is that credit card debt can kill us. And uh, the really good news is that there's hope. In fact, there's a really good chance that you can get out of your credit card debt. All you need to do is all we need to do is humble ourselves and admit that we have a problem. And then you just go to a, a, an expert. It might even be somebody within your own family or right here in our own church family. We have people that would be glad to help you with that area that are experts in that area. They'll be glad to look at your finances. And really, all you need to do is get yourself on a budget and face the red ink that's flowing out of your checking account and everything else. And then all you do is cut back on your expending, get yourself on a budget, and you can do it. You really can do it. There's a good chance that everybody in this room could get out of, of debt and with their credit cards. And you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you could make it. You know what? Even the federal government probably could make it. Even the federal government could probably get in the black. In fact, I don't understand those voodoo numbers because there's trillions upon trillions of dollars. And then I'll hear that it's okay. A new administration comes in and the taxes increase and they say everything's going to be fine. And probably even the federal government could get out of debt. But I want to talk to you today not really about credit card debt because that's serious. And the good news is even if you don't get out of debt, we no longer have debtor's prison. Like if you read Charles Dickens' stories, they used to throw people in jail for not paying their bills. How many of you are glad that they don't have debtor's prison anymore? They don't throw you in jail anymore. In fact, you can literally just declare bankruptcy and you won't go to jail for it. So that's the good news. 
The bad news is that your debt of sin is going to ruin you, not just like credit card debt might ruin you financially for a few years, but our debt of sin could ruin us forever. And I want you to think about the various ways. You see, what, what a lot of people say about our debt of sin is like some of you will go to a secular psychologist and you'll pay them or a psychiatrist. If it's a really good psychiatrist, you might pay $100, $150 an hour and more. And a secular counselor will tell you this. What you need to do with your debt of sin. How many of you have ever felt guilty in this room? Anybody ever felt guilty? Okay. Now, when you feel guilty, what do you want to do? You want to get rid of the guilt. So you go to a secular counselor, and this is what I, I'm going to save you the $100. This is what they're going to tell you. Is that there isn't such a thing as moral debt. Because there's no such thing as moral evil. In other words, everything is relative. And so all you need to do is decide that your guilt is a false guilt and you don't need to worry about it because the fact that you've left four families in the lurch and that you're now living with someone that doesn't belong to you, the fact that you have lied and cheated at work, the fact that you cheated on your income tax, you see, the reality of the matter is is that everything is relative and you really haven't done anything wrong. It's okay. It's kind of like writing a letter to Sears and saying that it's giving you a lot of trauma that over the last year that you knew you were going to pay for your refrigerator on time and that it's causing you a lot of internal conflict because you don't quite have the payments to pay for your refrigerator. So you've decided that it's not part of your lifestyle to pay for refrigerators. So you're going to cancel your debt, and you'll know that Sears will understand because emotionally you don't feel too good about having to pay off your refrigerator. Now, you all laugh about that, but I think deep inside, I really believe that every single one of you understand, every single one of you understand that that's not going to work with Sears. And how many of you think that'll work with God? Does it really make, I really believe that deep inside of you, everybody in this room knows that just pretending that you have never done anything wrong or changing the standards according to your feelings, I think every one of you know that that's a bunch of baloney. I think kids know, like if their moms and dads have been unfaithful and there's a marriage that breaks up, when those kids are 15... When I ask them how they're doing, they all say, oh, everything's great, everything's great, mom's doing great, dad's doing great. When they're 26 and they start coming into full identity and full understanding, then they tell me, mom and dad really blew it, and they hurt me. And what they did wasn't too hot because they didn't keep a marriage covenant. And there's lots of different reasons, like the scripture does teach that there can be brokenness in a marriage and there can be innocent parties. And so if you've gone through that and you are an innocent party, I want you to understand that, that it's okay. The Lord Jesus is going to be with you. And the Bible's full of stories of brokenness. If you're a guilty party that's blown apart a marriage, what are you going to do about it? And just pretending that everything is fine isn't going to make it go away. So how do we approach this? The truth of the matter is religion's really on the uptake. When I was in college, all my professors uh, in the secular arena, not at a Christian school where I was at, but when I went to Alfred University and talked to professors down there and witnessed the unbelieving kids on the Alfred University campus, part of New York University system and stuff, 
They would tell me that morality was going to disappear, religion was going to disappear, we're going to have a new age where everything is just fine, and that there wouldn't be any preachers in the future. No rabbis, you know, no priests, we don't need any of those. Uh, how many of you noticed how that all came true, right? In fact, one of the things about secularism is they've completely blown it. Religion is exploding in the world, if you haven't noticed. In fact, our greatest enemy had to do with the great conflict of passionate, fervent religion that becomes very fanatical and even takes people's lives with Islamic fundamentalism. And Europe is really wrestling. Secular Europe against this passionate, red-hot, Islamic, religious, spiritual reality. They don't know what to do with it. So religion's on the uptake. And I want to share with you the way religion works, and I can do that in Romans. The Apostle Paul in Romans was trained by Jewish rabbis. And until he met Jesus on Damascus Road, I want to tell you that the Apostle Paul fervently followed what every Jewish rabbi taught. And basically it went like this. If you were Jewish and you were circumcised in the eighth day, instead of uh, dedicating a child like we just did this morning and asking the Messiah Jesus to come into their life and that they could be saved by grace, a Jewish family would circumcise their child on the eighth day, the sons. That would make them a son of the covenant. Then, if the child was, was, was diligent, they would be bar mitzvahed when they went into young adolescence at 13. They would become a son of a covenant or the daughter of the covenant. And then they would uh, become part of the adult Jewish community. They would have a Sabbath time every Friday night at 6 o'clock. The men would come and read the Torah. The women would listen in another part of the synagogue in the first century. The women would sit on one side or on a higher area. Men down and the sons would read. And they would have some instruction. Faithfully do that. Uh, They wouldn't do any cooking. Nobody did any cooking from 6 o'clock Friday night to 6 o'clock Saturday night. And everybody rested. It's really a beautiful holiday. You would keep the three Jewish festivals. And... In the first century, this Jewish religion was exploding. Many people were joining it because there was a hunger in the Roman Greek world because of guilt and the gods, all these multitude gods, you know, all the Greek gods and the Roman gods that wasn't cutting it. So a lot of people were turning to Judaism. Just like today, a lot of your friends are turning and saying, let's get religious. In fact, how many of you have noticed that when you do something bad, that after you recover a little bit and begin thinking about it, how many of you have ever felt like, man, I need to go to church again? Anybody ever have that? Anyone that's ever had that, raise their hand, okay? Now, that's the, tri- the traditional way. Almost all of you have the idea that the way you pay for your sin is the way you handle credit card debt. You get yourself on a budget, you stop sinning so badly, and you take care of it by turning over a new leaf. All religion teaches that. Islam teaches that. Judaism teaches that. Mary and I went to a service that was a Christian service last night. And basically they taught exactly the same thing. So I'm not just speaking about a hypothetical thing. I heard a guy like me sitting, you know, talking like I'm talking now. And he basically was saying that you have the love of God inside of you. Fan the flames. You can, and he never mentioned guilt or sin, but the basic idea is try to be a good person, everything will be fine. And I want to share something with you, you, is you all love that. You all love that. The problem with that is that your bill's too high, that it's just not going to cut it. In other words, the scripture, what we learned in the book of Romans, what we learned just to review the argument of the book of Romans, and you've got to really get this. If you haven't got it yet, go back and read Romans 118 
through chapter 3, verse 22, because Paul builds a case that your debt of sin is just too high. Now, the issue is, what are we going to do about it? And some of you are still convinced that you're going to pay for your debt of sin by trying harder. The Apostle Paul has a better way. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 13, because he makes an incredible claim. And you've got to get this, and only the Spirit of God can help you to do it. But in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul continues his argument that Orthodox Judaism, that believes, and I'm not knocking, I want you to understand, you live in a culture that says all religions the same. They are not. People don't teach the same thing. If I was an Islamic imam teaching you, I would teach you different than I'm going to teach you the next few minutes. And it's not loving and it isn't tolerant. It is dishonest to not recognize that. If you really want to understand me, like if you want to really understand what I'm thinking, then you need to listen real carefully because Mary and I have built our life. If I die today or if Mary dies today, our whole existence is built on trusting what I'm going to teach you in the next few minutes. And I've dedicated my whole life. Like I've been there when your babies were born. I've been there in intensive care for 34 years when you've been sick. I have buddies of mine, really close buddies of mine, that are at Jesus' side right now, or else it's all a bunch of baloney. Does that make sense? In other words, like Sherry Ferris, for example. I was at Sherry's bedside, down on my knees, like I mentioned last week when we talked about Garrison's graduation. And we were trusting what I'm going to teach you the next few minutes, that Sherry would be okay. Carol Thomas is sitting over there. And Precious Virginia had MS for many years. And I was there the night when she went home to glory. So this is serious stuff, okay? And the Apostle Paul lays out, and I want you to see, it doesn't make any difference what I believe, but you need to decide whether you're going to trust God's word whether you're going to trust the Apostle Paul. Look what he says in chapter 4, verse 13. He said, it was, it, it was not, so it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. Paul is directly contradicting Jewish thinking, Orthodox Jewish thinking. They would read this, it was through the law that Abraham and his offspring, they would hold his offspring was them, they received life. They received forgiveness. They became the children of God because they kept the Mosaic law. You can read about that in 2 Maccabees. You can read about it in much of the first century Jewish literature. And it taught just the opposite of what Paul's teaching here. What does Paul teach? It's not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, that he would be the heir of the world. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. What does it mean that he would be the heir of the world? But through the righteousness that comes by faith. So that's the difference. This is what you need to see. The contrast is Orthodox Judaism says that you become an heir of God, an heir of the world. And by the way, first century Judaism did expand on the promise. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And that's incredible news. You need to think about what am I going to inherit? Like as a believer in Jesus the Messiah, what's my inheritance? I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The Apostle Paul says that you inherit it not because you keep the Sinaitic law, the law of Moses, and you become Jewish, but you receive it incredibly. You receive right standing with God simply because you trust 
have faith in God's promise. Then he argues, well, I'd say, Paul, prove it to me. He says, for if those who live by the law are the heirs, if it's those that keep their religious laws, if they're the ones that get the inheritance, then Paul says, forget about faith. You don't need to believe in God's promise because you can do it yourself. Faith has no value and the promise is worthless. In other words, if God says, I will make you an heir of the world, it's a free gift, it's a miracle that I'll do in your life, and then you have to work to earn it, then the promise doesn't mean anything. It's kind of like saying to my kids, I'm going to give you a big Christmas gift, but you got to mow the lawn for the next all summer long, June, July, and August. That's not a gracious gift, and my promise means nothing because if they don't mow the lawn every day, what's going to happen with their Christmas? Tell me. It don't happen. You got me? That's Paul's argument. If you're going to get saved, if you're going to pay for your sin by being a good Jew or a good Christian or a good Islamic person, I could expand it, the Apostle Paul is saying that God's promise of grace and your trust in that promise doesn't mean anything. Now, the Jew would raise his hand at that time and say, well, Paul, Father Abraham proves that it's not by a promise because Father Abraham is our exhibit number one of someone who obeyed the law. And that's what all the first century rabbis would teach. And that's why Paul's using Father Abraham as an example. And this is what I want you to understand. The popular thinking will be if you are in a Jewish synagogue, they read the book of Genesis, and that's what they believe. I read the book of Romans, and that's what I believe. And I want you to listen real carefully to me. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing the book of Romans, what he is arguing, now this is very important. He says to a Jewish rabbi, you have misinterpreted the story of Abraham. You have misread your own law, your own instructions from God. Moses, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, when Moses told the story of Abraham, Moses did not teach that Abraham was right before God because he kept the law of Moses. And Paul will argue in the book of Galatians, obviously that's so because the law didn't come till 430 years after Abraham. But in this book, he argues, let's look at the text. And that's what he's going to do in these next few verses. He builds on Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Look what he says. He says, because the law brings, it tells us what the law does. The law, in verse 14, for if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Now look at verse 15. Because what's the purpose of the law? We need to get this. The purpose of God's law brings God's judgment, his wrath against us. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. The idea of that is, it's not that sin didn't exist before Moses gave the law, but when you transgress, it means that your guilt is even more intense because before Moses gave the law, there was sin, but people were violating their conscience. Not a direct word from God. But when Moses gave the law, he made external and wrote it on a tablet what was already in our hearts. Like after the law of Moses, 
don't steal. When you stole, it wasn't just violating your conscience. You were actually transgressing the very command of the divine Lord. And that's serious. And the argument goes like this. The Jews are saying, you know, the Abrahams are a prime example. And Abraham kept the law 400 years before Moses gave it. What Paul is saying, no, the law of God, which he talked to us about in Romans 1 through 3, actually makes us even more guilty. And he's actually saying you that have the law and are proud about having the law, because you don't obey it, your guilt is intensifying. Because you're not just disobeying your own conscience. You have a direct command from the living God and you transgress it. You cross over the line. How many of you have ever done that? Anybody ever stolen anything here? Anyone that's ever stolen, raise their hand. How many of you have ever borne false witness? Raise your hand. We're all transgressors. Okay, now this is the issue. What are you going to do about it? Judaism motivates you. And, all, and by the way, all your religion, all religion builds on when you realize you're guilty and you know that tremendous impulse you have, well, I'm going to try harder. How many of you, when you've really done something bad, you all do it when you're dieting. How many of you, right after you gorge yourself, make a commitment that you're going to go on a diet? Everyone that's ever done that. You, you want to lose weight, and you go out to steak and ale, and you eat a gigantic meal, and right while you're driving home, you make a recommitment to your diet. How many of you have ever done that? That's what religion, now you need to understand this, that's what, uh, what religionists like me that build their career on it, they use that to get you to give, to get you to make their religious programs happen. And that's not what the Apostle Paul is telling you. And it's deep in, in almost all of your souls, there's a part of your soul that says, that's right. I can turn over a new leaf and I can make it. And the Jewish first century rabbis taught that's the way Abraham got right with God. And, and Paul says, absolutely not. How did Abraham get right with God? This is what he says in verse 16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith. The promise from God is applied to us when we just trust God. It is by grace, which means and the idea of grace here is that you didn't earn it. God doesn't see any good in you. It's not because you have any hold upon God. That's a really key thing. You have no hold upon God, but God just freely chooses because he wants to, because he's just filled with forgiveness. He just forgives you. And that's hard to believe, but it's true. He says, and that's guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. That includes you. Not only to those who are of the law, not only the Jewish people that are, that are under the law of Moses, but also to those who, all those who follow the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. Remember the last time I taught you from the book of Romans, I, we sang Father Abraham. What makes us a son or daughter of Abraham is that we believe like Abraham, not that we keep the law like Abraham. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now that's a quote from Genesis 17.5. Now follow with me. Abraham is 100 years old when in Genesis 17, God told him that he would become a father of many nations. Now, he had Ishmael in Genesis 16, and that should encourage you because some of you have raised the issue. Well, hey, Abraham, it tells me here that Abraham never wavered in his faith. It looked to me like he wavered pretty good, and he did. How many of you ever wavered in your faith? 
Father Abraham really encourages me. Because in Genesis 15, the Lord said, you're going to have a promised child, and it's not going to be from your servant Eliezer. And in Genesis 16, Abraham says, well, let's do it through Hagar. Let's follow the laws of Canaan, and I'll take a concubine, and then we'll put the baby on Sarah's lap, and she'll take care of the baby, and that'll be the promised child. And Abraham did all that, and in Genesis 17, the Lord says, no, that's not going to be the promised child. You see, that's the human way. And Paul is arguing that even Abraham himself, in Genesis 16, he followed the human way. I'm going to get myself out of the debt. I'm going to get the promise fulfilled by my own inventions. How many of you think that worked out really well? No. Ishmael, the sons of Ishmael, the sons of Isaac are still fighting, and they're going to fight until Jesus unites them and reconciled them. Do you believe that? And that's what you need to do. You need to love Ishmaelites and pray that they'll come to know Jesus. And by the way, in the Holy Land right now, there's more evangelical believers among the sons of Ishmael than there are among the sons of Isaac. So don't forget that when you pray for the Middle East. But also don't forget that God has promised to give the Jewish people Israel, and he keeps his promises. So let that balance out in your mind and, and don't let the Christian church divides over that. It divides over whether you're going to politically support the Palestinians or you're politically going to support Israel. And the answer is that we need to be declaring the Messiah Jesus for both the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac. Amen? Only hope there is. You're on both sides. And only when Jesus says... You're going to get this land, and you're going to get this land, and Americans are going to get this land, and the the Mexicans are going to get this land, the Brazilians are going to get this land. Only when Jesus the Messiah comes is there going to be peace on earth. And right now, we're committed to bringing the Prince of Peace into people's hearts. That's what Paul is teaching about the life of Abraham. He became the father of many nations, and he is our father in the sight of God. Now, look what he says as he develops his argument a little bit more. He is our Father and Son of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead, and he calls things that are not as though they were. Now look at verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham had hope, or in hope. The idea is humanly, against all human hope, Abraham still had hope in the promise of God, the idea, and he trusted in it. That's what it means that he believed. So he became the father of many nations. How many Jews are there? About 15, 16 million in the world. How many Arabs are there? How many sons of Ishmael are there? Millions and millions and millions. A lot more than there are Jewish people, okay? And that's only a little bit. Abraham didn't just have Ishmael, but after Sarah died, he married Keturah, and he had several other nations that come from his womb. The truth of the matter is that Islamic people claim Abraham as their father. Jewish claim Abraham is your father, and as a born-again believer, I claim Abraham as my father. So how many children does Abraham have? That is literally true. So did God's promise to Abraham come true? And this is why you argue. You argue from the lesser to the greater because God's promise to Abraham came true. God's promise to me is going to come true. Amen? That's what he's talking about. He says, okay, Abraham, against all hope, believed that he would become the father of many nations, just as God promised him, so shall your offspring be, which is the promise in Genesis, without weakening his faith. And he did weaken in chapter 16, but the core, this is the key, and I don't know 
what's at the core of any of your lives. But I do know what was at the core of Abraham's life. Abraham could go through all kinds of ups and downs, but the core of his life was, I trust in the promise of God. He could mess up really badly. He could lie about Sarai. He could try out an alternative plan with Hagar. But when you got to right at the center of Abraham's life, you know what you had? I believe the promise. I believe in the Messiah. He's coming, just like God promised. And I trust. And when God tells me at 100, at 100 years of age that my wife's going to have a baby a year later, Abraham laughs about it because anyone that's 100 would laugh they're going to have a baby in nine months. And then Abraham says, I trust. It's a total miracle. And Paul's going to argue from the left or the greater. The same thing is what you need to believe. And he goes on and says this. So shall your offspring bring Without weakening his faith, verse 19, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. The idea of physically, Viagra and everything else is not going to work for him since he's about 100 years of age. And Sarah's womb is also dead. No babies their whole married life. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding God's promise. And the promise he doesn't waver about is when God said in nine months, Sarah's going to have a baby, Abraham believed it. In Genesis 15, when he arrived in the land, God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land and all the world's going to be blessed. Abraham says, I believe it. And God reckoned it to him, credit to his account as righteousness. He went on, yet he did not waver in his faith. He was strengthened and being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. How many of you are fully persuaded? Doesn't mean that you don't ever doubt, but how many of you, the core of your being say, I am fully persuaded that God will keep his promises. That's what faith is. And in this room right now, there's some of you that say, I am fully persuaded that God will keep his promises. Now, this is what Abraham's faith was. God said, Isaac... The child that's going to be a miracle child that's born out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. In nine months, the deadness is going to come life. And a baby of promise is going to be born. And Abraham believed God. And that baby produced Jacob. And that child produced the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons was Judah. And Judah produced David. And David eventually produced and a miracle with a virgin birth, you have Jesus be born. And he becomes the story, the whole, the one ultimately that Abraham is trusting. Does that make sense? You say, Dave, where do you get that from? Because that's the way Paul closes this passage. Look what he says in verse 22. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited were not written for him alone. So what I'm teaching this morning isn't just how Abraham got right with God. Paul is claiming, but it's also for us. To whom God will credit righteousness for all those who believe in him when he raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. This is what Paul is saying. Abraham believed that the promised child out of Sarah's womb, a dead womb, that there would be a gifted, a miracle child born. And that child's name was Isaac. I believe that out of the deadness of my life, how many of you will admit, without God doing a work in my life, I've had it? Now, I'm really serious. I want you guys, like, as a congregation, please listen to me, because your eternal destiny depends upon this. And I'm very exercised about this, because I just went to a service where nobody ever said, 
that it all depends upon Jesus. This is really serious stuff. This pastor said that you have love inside of you. And if, you'll, if you read 1 Corinthians 13, David is patient. David is kind. David is long-suffering. If that's not true, this pastor taught that if David will work on it every single day, that he can get it. And you love that. That's what your big salespeople tell you. That's what a lot of the popular TV preachers tell you. And I'm going to tell you the truth. You can ask Mary because she will tell you the truth. Dave Wurtzen can work from now until I'm 156. David will be patient. David will be kind. David will be long-suffering. David will not keep a record wrong. And I got news for you. You know what? If David doesn't in his own strength, David will never, never get it. You know why? Because David in his nature without Jesus is dead. You know what that means? David is not kind. He's mean. David is not gentle. He is rough and vindictive. David does keep a record of wrongs. You mess with me. When I was a little kid, if I was playing ball with you and you cheated on me, I would look when the referee wasn't looking and I'd deck you. And I would pay you back. I tried it on Carlisle, Glenn Carlisle, and he decked me right back, and he's a lot bigger than I am. That's Margaret's son-in-law. That's the truth. How many of you that have lived with me for 34 years, is that true? Is what I told you true? (laughs) Now, this is the promise. Out of the deadness of my life, this is what I trust. Jesus... On the cross of Calvary, knew I was that kind of a Dave Wurtzen. And he stretched out his arms and let nails be driven through it for me. And then he rose again. That's why Paul says he was put to death for our sin. He was raised for our justification. When Jesus was raised, he said, David, if you trust me and you receive my gift, I'll make you a new Dave Wurtzen. And there's a part of me, and Mary... You can ask her about this. There's another part of me that is kind. There's a part of me all as a gift of grace. And you can ask the guy that have worked with me a long time. They can see evidence of a miracle that's taking place in my life. Same thing is true in your life. And to be honest with you, like I did hit my brother over the head with an electric football game. And I haven't ever done that again. And I don't do it now. And that's a miracle. That's a miracle. As we close today, I want to share something with you. I started out today, I told you I'd talk about credit. I want to close by just saying quickly what your inheritance is in Christ. How many of you noticed that it said that Abraham would be the heir of the world? Anybody notice that? What in the world does that mean? Okay. It means that when your, your father dies, and our father's going to never die, so he gives us our inheritance. But I want to share you with you my inheritance. This is it. I brought it here today, okay? My dad died in 1996, somewhere in there. And this is my inheritance, okay? I'll say the best for the last, okay? I got this. This is a West Point cadet helmet. This is what all the West Point cadets wear on parade. And my dad did a Bible study every week, so this means a lot to me because when I was a little kid, every week I went up and saw, like, Army play Penn State or play Pittsburgh 
and I, Joe Caldwell was a quarterback, and I would watch them play football, and I'd watch them early in the morning like the Aggies. They would march. The cadets do that same thing, only they wear their gray, and they wear these kind of a helmet. So that reminds me of my dad. In fact, my dad, in the Korean War, a lot of the guys that came to his Bible study, right while they were in Bible study, they received the war declaration of Korea, and about half those guys are home with Jesus now because they received Jesus in that Bible study. So that's what that's about. Pretty important, but not worth a lot of money. Okay? This is, uh, let's see, it's already falling apart. This is an original King James, a sheet from the original King James. So some of you might want to come up and look at this, because if you, a lot of you are, might have relatives and friends that say it's got to be the King James Bible. Well, the King James Bible that they use Sunday morning doesn't look like this. This is the original King James. You might want to look at it. It has, and the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation. I can read it. Um, Some of you should come up, and you'll find out you probably can't read it the way that it's written. This is original King James plate. I got that from my dad. And somebody gave my dad this rifle. I didn't think that much about it, but I just liked it. And Wallace McWhorter is really into guns. He told me, he came over and looked at one day, I have an old Japanese fake flintlock that's not worth anything. But this is actually a hexagonal board 22 varmint rifle. And it's made so that it cools its barrel, single shot. And this really is worth a little bit of something. And my dad gave me this. My dad never shot it. I haven't shot it either. My dad really wasn't into it. But this is my inheritance. That's it. Okay? But I want to share with you what I got from my heavenly daddy. I'm the heir of the world. How many of you think Bill Gates has a lot of money? How many of you would like the money that Bill Gates has? Now, I'm serious about this. Do you know that as a child of God, as a child of God, everything that Bill Gates might have in the world for a thousand years, like if the Lord Jesus were to come today for the church, and I believe that there will be a seven years tribulation, there's going to be a thousand year reign. During the thousand years, I'm going to have all the stuff that Microsoft has if it's not destroyed during the tribulation period. That's the truth. I'm the heir of the world. You see, the Jewish promise, remember in Genesis chapter 1, God says, Adam and Eve, I create you to rule the world. In chapter 3, they blew it. God says, well, let's have a test case. You can rule the garden. God's intent is for human beings to rule the world, to receive and inherit the world. And our father, Adam, blew it. And that's what the promise to Abraham. The Jews weren't wrong to say Father Abraham is not going to inherit. Like I can show you in first century Jewish literature, they were no longer teaching. Like how many of you hear debates about whether the Jews should inherit the land of Canaan? A lot of debate about that. But the promise to Israel is not just that they'll inherit the land of Canaan. That's a little bit of it. The Lord promises to all those who believe his promise of the seed that they're going to inherit the world, and ultimately they're going to inherit a new heaven and a new earth. This is really the truth. If you've trusted Jesus' promise, then when you go to downtown Dallas and walk into the W Hotel, and you can look around there and go, man, this is really small potatoes. You ought to see what my daddy does. And this belongs to me. And when you watch a guy like Donald Trump strut his stuff and think he's really important, whenever you hear a wealthy, powerful businessman or woman strut their stuff, I want you to think, how absurd. My heavenly daddy's keeping their heart going. My heavenly daddy's giving them the impulses to their brain. My heavenly daddy is the one that gave birth to them in the beginning. 
everything is totally dependent upon them. And all the gifts and everything else come from him as a free gift. And if they don't know Jesus, they'll lose it all. Do you believe that? As I close it, I want you to bank on that. Some of you that are powerful business people, if you're using your money just to bring pleasure to yourself and you think, this is mine, I earned it, you didn't. It's a trust. It's a gift from your father, everything you have. If you don't have many of the world's resources, you live in a, in a really small one-bedroom apartment. As a child of God this morning, I just told you, you inherit the world in the end. And that's the truth. And one day the Savior says the last shall be first. And you might be like in a one-bedroom apartment with lots of other apartment people. And that's your place to try to help other people to inherit with you. It's your place of influence. It's your place to be able to help other people understand the promise. So what this pattern today is saying is that we'll never pay our debt of sin. But God's not only going to totally cancel our debt, he draws a line through it as we just trust his promise and believe that he died for us and he rose again. And then God says, in the end, I'm going to take you back to the Garden of Eden and you're going to inherit, first of all, a thousand years to rule the world and then eternity when the Lord remakes the earth, does a remodeling job on the earth, you might say, and we have a world and a universe that's not corrupted by sin. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.